Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Tel Luca, and today's episode is sponsored by Handspring Publishing. When I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write years ago, I was lucky enough to have had two offers, one from a huge international media company and the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people. I'm really glad I chose Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share with you, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional-level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Yes, and Whitney Lowe here. I just want to also say Handspring has a new instructional webinar series, Moved to Learn. It's a regular series of 45-minute segments featuring some of their amazing authors. So head on over to the website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And while you're there, have a look at their excellent catalog and be sure to use the code TTP. That's like the thinking practitioner at checkout. And we appreciate the sponsorship of Handspring. So thanks again so much. Yeah, that code gives you a discount off of stuff you buy for them. So thanks, Handspring. And thanks, Whitney. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, good to see you once again. We've been on opposite sides of the world for a couple months now. You've been doing some major traveling. So uh, I want to welcome you back home and uh, welcome you back to the podcast. I've missed doing these for a while. It's good to, to get going again. So Likewise. how was your trip? Trip was just astounding. We started uh, 68 days ago. I just got back yesterday. Started 68 days ago in Thailand and had our uh, advanced trainings retreat there and then taught classes in Taiwan, which was on full lockdown at that point, dealing with the coronavirus spread. They did a really good job of, it's probably the last in-person event there they're going to have for a while. We did, we taught 80 people all masked and uh, gloved everything else. It was quite an experience. Wow, yeah. And then went on to Australia where we ended up uh, sequestering for about a month in a beautiful spot up in the Blue Mountains and had some mm -hmm. uh, great, you know, from a distance support from people living there in Australia. And it was uh, a good place to watch all this unfold and see how the world is adapting to these things coming forward. How, yeah, we had a couple of uh, events we did. On, I noticed you did some Facebook Live events, doing some things to reach out and connect with everybody. And it certainly has been interesting to watch everybody's attempts to find new ways to connect with each other and uh, you know I've been especially doing a lot of work with the schools and trying to find ways to help you know maintain ongoing classroom things over the distance here too so uh, innovation has certainly been one of the big key things that's come out of this uh, I, I bet that's keeping sure. you busy yeah indeed indeed uh, you know I've been banging the drum about the validity and importance of online education for many years so I think now it's it's really coming to be uh, coming to be evident how, how important that can be if it's if it's done well. But I would certainly prefer to have it happen under different circumstances and not this kind of emergency uh, sort of freak out, get it, try to get it done with no planning whatsoever. That's That's been a challenge for lots and lots of people. It has been. So, and yeah. uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Doing it well is the key. And yeah. I know you've been uh, leading that vanguard for a long time. So, yeah. So one other question I wanted to ask you was just, uh, you know, I find this so fascinating to the um, 
intersection of our field in different cultures. I mean, you know, we talked earlier on one of the other um, episodes of quite a while back when you had been over in Europe. And uh, I wanted to know, just a curio- from a curiosity standpoint, what did you find to be sort of most interesting about what's going on in the bodywork communities in these countries in Asia where you were, Asia and Australia? What's anything stick out as particularly fascinating or interesting about the way things are done differently? Well, Taiwan is really a unique culture. It really is a confluence of Western influences and Eastern influences. And the practitioners there were uh, very well educated and very familiar with a lot of uh, approaches that are taught here in the States and in Europe. And uh, so that was a real joy to work with, their deep background in in the sciences and what we were teaching and what we're bringing to them. And then Australia is just such a unique place. It really is. Uh, in some ways, it's the place in the world I think is the most like the U.S. and Canada, mm-hmm. and yet, yeah. yeah, and yet it's a it's its own parallel universe. There, if you just think about the flora and fauna, so many of the things there are familiar, but then you look at them a little closer and you realize, wait a minute, this is a really different animal, a really different yeah. plant than uh-huh. I'm used to. Yeah. And the cultures like that too. At first glance, it seems fairly familiar, and then the more time you spend with it, you realize there's a, a very distinct take on life. Yeah, it comes from living down under. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and those things are colored a great, a great deal by the the geography and the the other you know aspects of of life that are different in those places too. I think I think that kind of stuff is really fascinating. But you know, it it is um, incredible. I think the way that uh, things like the the internet has allowed us to communicate in almost well in real time with people on the other side of the world and and get far more connected with those. Um, cultures and with things that are going on in, in our community because you know early on in the days when you and I first got started doing this there you know we would always hear about things that were going on in other parts of the world or you know what what are they doing in Australia or New Zealand and maybe you might learn some things once you go down there and see it but there wasn't the regular ongoing connection that we have now with, right. uh, with this real-time communication so no that's right we're living us all closer together it really it drives home that we're living in a global culture and yeah we're they're familiar with exactly what's current just like we are here in this country and it's we're living in, like this uh, you know the epidemic is showing us we're connected all around the globe yeah I think that's that is absolutely true and we're gonna try to touch base on that a little bit today and that sort of takes us into our our topic today is that degree of sort of interconnection of how we're all vulnerable in uh, many different ways. So um, because of the timeliness of what's going on as we're recording this here in early April, we are in the midst of the coronavirus. Um, Well, we're probably not at the peak um, here in the United States yet. We're having some very serious hot spots, but some indications that we may be starting to temper it a little bit, but still it's a very, very serious concerning public health situation going on here. So we're going to talk about uh, a little bit today about some facets of this and maybe touch base too on how that's impacted our um, professional communities and, and ways that we can look at uh, what we're doing on the other side of, of how this all comes out as well. So today we're going to uh, talk a little bit about cytokine storms, a term mm-hmm. that some people may hear a little bit in, in talking about this. So um, Tell me about this, uh, Till, because I know you've been doing a, a great deal of study on inflammatory issues for some time and want to fill us in a little bit more about what what is a cytokine storm, what are cytokines, and how does this relate to what we're hearing about a lot in the, in the public health news? Well, it's, yeah, just in, in context, too, it's, um, 
the topic is timely, and we we wanted to we pushed this topic up in our publication schedule because we wanted to talk about something related to the virus. And yet, I'm thinking, you know, by the time this pu- is published, I think mid to late April of this same year, that we have to think about the fact that we're learning so much as we go. Like everything we know is being figured out along the way, and is up for grabs. And the same is true for the cytokine. Uh, storm issue. It was first, I first saw it in Vox back in early March, and then the New York Times just a few days ago published a big article on it. But the concept there, cytokine storms, the concept is that it's in at least a certain number of the fatalities that result. It's not the virus that kills people. It's actually people's own immune system that goes haywire and causes their death. And, you know, I should, even as, I, I can, there's a little bit of a reluctance even going, getting started to talk about this because I just really want to emphasize there's such a broad range of reactions that people have to the virus from zero symptoms. And, uh, you know, we're learning as we go, but it looks like there's a large number, maybe the majority of people have zero symptoms who are exposed to uh, a sore throat and a cough. But then, of course, all the way to the minority who do end up uh seriously ill, having to be hospitalized, and some of those even die. So the cytokine storm, turns out, it's, we're not sure how many of those people that die have this going on, but uh, a number of them seem to. And yet uh, the cytokine storm isn't the virus killing you per se. It's your own reaction to your own immune systems fighting the virus that ends up killing in those cases. Yeah, so let's back up a little bit for those who may not be as familiar with what we're talking about here when we uh, mentioned the cytokine storm. Tell me a little bit more. Tell, what are cytokines and what role do they play in both the coronavirus as well as numerous other um, health compromised health com- uh, conditions where cytokine storms can also occur? Yeah. So cytokines are signaling molecules. They're little bits of protein that basically signal immune processes. They're released by immune cells when they detect damage or they detect a pathogen like a virus or the damage caused by a virus. So these immune cells release cytokines, which are signaling molecules. They go out and they signal immune processes and other immune cells, which come in and help uh, fight the infection or repair the damage. So when we hear the term cytokine storm, what you were referring to just a few moments ago, too, is this is a situation where maybe the the instructions that the cytokines are giving to the system are not either correct or not being handled correct, and that is causing the system's reaction to be excessive, then, essentially, is what we're saying. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, the instructions are probably correct. The cytokines just say, hey, come come over here, I need some help, or you know, uh, attack or whatever it is that they say. But the instructions are correct. What happens, though, the storm part is that first wave of cytokine goes out. White blood cells, for example, come in and attack the damage and the virus. When the, the cells are attacked and destroyed, they release more cytokines, which go out and summon more white blood cells, which release further levels of cytokines. And for whatever reason, in these, in this minority of cases, that escalating storm of cytokines isn't being regulated and turned off as it would in a normal inflammatory reaction. And it keeps building until the system essentially becomes overwhelmed by that acute phase of inflammatory response. 
So it would seem if that is really the case, then our primary strategies for trying to tackle something like this, and, and, and this is from uh, also some of the things that I've been hearing in, in, in the discussions from the public health officials about the investigations and the research into trying to find treatments have focused a lot of attention on anti-inflammatory treatment strategies because that will try to mitigate some of this cytokine storm, but it appears that we really haven't been that effective in finding a good anti-inflammatory treatment strategy. So uh, is that uh, also, again, this is try seems like a part of the systemic problem because it's not just the way we think of inflammation for, as being a local problem where we could just, you know, slap some ice on this or, or take some, you know, corticosteroid or something like that in a localized area. There's, there's something that seems to be much bigger happening here. It's, it, you, you said a few things that I should respond to there, and it's, I'm really pacing myself because in, inflammation gets complicated really quickly. And it's hard to talk about one aspect without talking about all of it. But first of all, uh, it's not just about anti-inflammatories, it turns out. And you're right, we haven't found effective ways to you use anti-inflammatories to regulate this kind of thing. Uh, part of that is the model. It turns out that uh, cytokines themselves can be anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory or pro-resolution. And it's probably the case that what we need is resolution, not anti-inflammatories, to end something like a cytokine storm. Now, we can turn it off temporarily by using things like steroids, and that's what uh, uh, intensive care units are using for patients that are dealing with this. They use a steroid to essentially turn off the immune system, uh, which stops or slows down, rather, the cytokine chain reaction. But it doesn't help with fighting an infection because you've turned off the immune system. The immune system is what you use to fight the infection. So it's a complicated so that, Yeah, that seems like that would be one of those things which is a difficult balancing act of how much do you turn off the immune system because then you are susceptible to um, flaming up of other things that might right. be, you know, potentially putting your life in jeopardy. But then, uh, you know, obviously you need to turn down the the heat on the on the response from well, the cytokines. Let me get back to that because it's the same it's essentially the same quandary you face when you have an achy joint or a chronically inflamed uh, musculoskeletal issue. Should I take it an anti-inflammatory or not? Mm-hmm. Because the anti-inflammatory like it's pretty common here in Colorado for people that are skiing to dose up on vitamin A or in other words Advil before they go skiing so that their achy joints or whatever don't bother them during the day. Now, the problem with that is, one, you might do things that are mechanically stressing you more than your mechanics can take. Two, you're turning off the healing processes. Not only are you turning off the pain and sensitivity, but you're turning off the benefits of inflammation, too. Inflammation has a really bad rap. That's like the bumper sticker that would come out of uh, the inflammation uh, training that I do, is that really we need inflammation to heal. We need inflammation to repair things. Now, in the cytokine storm situation, it's gotten out of hand. It's gotten, you know, it's just, and backing up a little bit more, too, there's different phases of inflammation, and that's important to understand when you're thinking about this, too. The acute phase, when those white blood cells come in, is basically about attacking, destroying, breaking things down, the, either the invader or the damaged tissue from the mechanical damage or from the invader itself. So that first phase, you got the white blood cells and a bunch of other things, peptides and enzymes and oxidative mechanisms that are basically tearing tissue apart. When that goes on too long, that's what causes the damage. 
usually in a, in a healthy inflammatory reaction, those things, the brakes are being put on almost immediately within minutes of that initial acute reaction. Other cells come in, other cytokines get released that start to slow that thing down and actually start to repair the damage as it's being done. Mm-hmm. This sounds very similar to a lot of the um, arguments that we've seen in the research literature in the last few years about whether or not ice is a good idea after an acute injury. Yeah. Uh, talking about, well, there really is some potential benefit to the inflammatory response that happens after that injury, and maybe we shouldn't be tamping it down with, with ice. But this seems to be happening on, a, obviously, a much more systemic and global basis than the localized um, inflammatory response of, of an acute musculoskeletal injury. That's right. We have inflammation going on all the time, mm-hmm. all the time, multiple places in our bodies, at multiple levels in our bodies. It's good. We need that. That's basically called healing, called repair and healing throughout the body. Now, the ice, yeah, the ice debate, uh, there's, if, if I want to start an argument in, in a room full of therapists, uh, I can bring up ice or I can bring up diet in terms yeah. of inflammation. <laughs> right. And there's going to be different opinions about that. And there's probably some other good hot topics. There's a few other hot topics. <laughs> yeah. But those around inflammation, those seem to be a couple of the key hot spots, so to speak. Yeah. And yeah, the ice debate goes, well, should we actually be stopping or slowing down inflammation? Because that's the healing process. And uh, my takeaway from all that, and not that I want to short circuit any of those important debates and questions, but at the end of the day, my takeaway is, uh, if the goal is pain, temporary pain relief, then ice is, has some benefit for some people sometimes. If the goal is long-term healing and strengthening and adaptation, then you don't want to slow that down. You don't want to inhibit that. You want that cycle to run its way through. Yeah. And that also, I think, would uh, there's a lot of that that seems like it would be relevant for the, um, the look into whether or not anti-inflammatory pain medications, uh, such as corticosteroids, are really... A strategically good idea in many types of musculoskeletal disorders. I mean, they That's right. they tend to be very effective as pain management, but they may be. Um, there's a good bit of evidence that there's in many situations causing a longer term delay in really good tissue reparative processes because Absolutely. of the other physiological processes involved Absolutely. with them. So, yeah, there's good there's yeah. good research showing that that uh, you know steroids, for example, or corticosteroids, do help some pain, and they probably prolong the healing process. And in some cases, if repeated exposure, like a couple of cortisone shots or more, end up causing their own set of damage issues that come, you know, could come later. Yeah. So it's, um, they're powerful drugs, and it's good if I'm in an emergency room with, or rather an intensive care unit with uh, an inflammatory storm, then I'm glad the doctors have that in their toolbox. But uh, the answer isn't just anti-inflammatories. That's like the acute response. That's the life-saving mechanism. Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, you know, in so many of these situations, we see, you know, that we're running up against judgment calls of, you know, what are, you know, weighing those benefits of, like, how much are we going to uh, compromise this one system in order to save this other system and then, like, tilt the scales back in the other direction. And those are very complex decisions I think they're having to make under some incredibly difficult, stressful circumstances. So, I mean, just watching the news that, uh, you know, these hospitals with people in the hallways and, you know, out in these emergency um, hospital, um, you know, makeshift hospital environments, just incredibly difficult situations in which they're having to make those kinds of of very challenging life or death decisions for people. So, And there isn't research to fall back on, really. And there's, I mean, the cytokine storm idea is actually 
been around since I think it was 1993 that it was first named in that way, and it was studied in terms of transplants and grafts because that can mm-hmm. happen there too. And yeah. there's, you know, a few other conditions where it's happening, uh, like suspected in schizophrenia and in major depression, yeah, as well as Alzheimer's. Uh, disease and some kinds of cancer there probably are cytokine chain reactions going on in those things as well but the big one is uh, the spanish flu mm-hmm. from 1918 that that big epidemic it's the, it's the thinking now is that it killed most of its people through cytokine chain reactions yeah. rather than direct viral effects yeah now i you know i read some things about that recently in, in looking into some of this stuff and i was curious um and this gets probably into something like forensic epidemiology or something like that. Like, mm. how in the world do you come up with those ideas for something where the information is 100 years old 100 years of ago. what <laughs> happened to all these people? Yeah. Now, that's pretty fascinating. So. I just read, in one of these studies I've been looking over, I just read a quote from somebody writing, this was a few years ago, so before the coronavirus issue. He was writing about the uh, 1918 Spanish flu. He said, it's too bad virologists don't live for 200 years because then we'd see if our theories are true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And no, but they, but they actually have reproduced the Spanish flu virus from fragments. They've kind of re, essentially cloned it to study uh-huh. it. And there's been a lot of going back and looking at tissue samples and reanalyzing and reconstructing what probably did happen there. Yeah. And it turns out, yeah, it was uh, probably um, cytokine storms. And that flu killed young people more than old people, which is interesting. And that's, in the case of in the cytokine storm effect, that's stronger in young people who have a, a strong immune system. Yeah. So so if you have a strong yeah, immune system, you stuff. have a stronger Well, listen, I want to also come back and look at some other issues, especially um, how this is touching us in the massage and bodywork community here a little bit in our second half. Um, we're going to take a brief moment to hear from our halftime sponsor, and today, our halftime sponsor is ABMP, the Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. An ABMP membership includes 50-plus member discounts on everything from massage tables and supplies to cell phone service, and all the members can access over 200-plus continuing education courses with free CE hours. You can read ABMP's award-winning member magazine, Massage and Bodywork, at uh, www.massageandbodyworkdigital.com. And I would uh, just comment that Till has a really good article coming out this month, probably very shortly by the time this episode airs. It's probably out there on uh, the cytokine storm and uh, issues related to coronavirus. So listeners who join ABMP as new members can save $24 on their membership at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So from ABMP, you can expect more. Thanks, Whitney. Yeah, and thanks to ABMP too. Yeah, they did a great job of reshuffling their priorities, and they're really offering a lot in terms of both information and coordination for the bodywork and massage community. So thanks to ABMP. Yeah, great. So I want to touch base on some of the things that we were just getting to here as we start to look at this um, in terms of how it's affecting some of uh, the things that we're doing. And this, you know, I want to hear some more about the things that you've been looking into with your study of inflammation recently, um, just in kind of a, a higher up level, you, we hear a lot frequently about the potential benefits of massage in helping the immune system. So what are your takes on ways in which, you know, now obviously we can't be doing massage right now because of the danger of spreading the virus, but at the time when people are able to start getting back to work, what kind of things do we see as potential benefits of something like 
the soft tissue manipulation work that we do being um, beneficial for helping to manage some of these kinds of, of reactions with inflammatory responses? That's a, a super important question. And to answer it, I just want to re- repeat that distinction between acute and chronic inflammation and local and systemic inflammation. Yeah. And it's probably the case, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, I'm, I'm sure, in fact, that bodywork and massage and manual therapy has only indirect benefit for situations like corona. Obviously, like you said, we're not even going to try to work on people while there's a danger of infection. But even other uh, systemic acute reactions, like think about like allergic reactions, think about other kinds of flu, think about autoimmune issues. Those are uh, in the same realm of systemic inflammatory reactions. And there's not, you don't massage someone with a flu and make them feel better, yeah. at least not using pressure. Mm-hmm. And the same is true, say, with a, a bee sting that's getting a strong allergic reaction. You're not going to rub that better. And so that, that model really applies to all kinds of inflammatory reactions. It's not about pressure. It's not about rubbing. It's not about uh, you know tissue, thinking of these specific tissue effects for most of those systemic inflammatory reactions and most of the acute ones as well. So, so one we thought can, that, oh, go ahead. No, no, we can have, we can benefit those situations, but we do it through the uh, systemic effects that massage and body work have. There's a lot of things we can do to support systemic immune competence, and that's really emerging as the key concept here in both coronavirus and in overall health is like how competent is your immune system? How well can it respond? How resilient is it? So people, it is a function of uh, people's well-being and their overall level of health. Yeah, so that really taps into something that makes us think about it, or at least makes me think about the potential preventative role that we might be having for this kind of thing, because the it appears the people who are most vulnerable to succumbing to the symptoms of the coronavirus have been those with immunocompromised systems, where the immune system is not able to really let's say, you know, op- work at its optimum function and gets overrun and overcome. So maybe, you know, trying to look at massage as a treatment per se, you know, for example, we think of massage as a treatment mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. soft tissue musculoskeletal disorders after they have occurred. But in this situation, we may see some things like the idea of massage and manual therapies that we are applying being really effective in helping to maintain uh, good consistency and, and, you know, strengthened immune systems overall just by decreasing stress levels and, you know, increasing, uh, you know, senses of well-being and all of those things that we are, they're very subtle, very hard to measure, but we do know they have an impact on the immune system. And so maybe it's one of those things that's not as clear-cut a direct line for a, a cause-effect benefit of the treatment, but it's something that has a lot of power to help encourage healthy immune systems that can fight this off and keep that cytokine storm from getting out of, spinning out of control. Perhaps, could be. Ida, I'm just, you bring to mind Ida Rolf, who was adamant, my background as a rolfer, you know, steeped me in this, she was adamant that we're not fixing problems, we're integrating the whole system. Mm-hmm. And she's not the only one who has that point of view, but that's that's reemerging as a holistic uh, health point of view. Says, so let's think about the health of the whole person, the whole system. And there are, like you said, very clear documented effects of both 
one-time intervention of manual therapy and receiving it regularly, how the, the role it can play in someone's overall health and well-being. Now, I should also say, and I know you're aware of this too, that there's controversy around the claims that people make about, you know, prevent, come in for treatment and prevent getting coronavirus. Take care yeah. of your immune system by getting my treatment. Right. It's not that clear. Yeah. And in anybody, you know, you can certainly exaggerate those claims as well. Yeah. But it's Pre- true that we have a role to play in people's overall health and yeah. we'll prevent things that, uh, including the susceptibility to, to disease. Yeah. Prevention in general is a very difficult thing to prove because we, it's, uh, you know, it's hard to say, well, if you hadn't done this, you know, you would have gotten so-and-so. So that is, of course, from a uh, sort of logical and statistical standpoint, extremely difficult to prove. But we can make some generalized assumptions when we know that there are some significant benefits. And again, this, you know, just to put this plug in here, this really is a very good example of the importance of supporting research in our field to help look into what are some of these uh, more global and systemic physiological effects of the work that we do so we can uh, make some determinations about how we would most appropriately apply this in situations that might be helpful for people. So um, these kinds of things that we're looking into, this is why it's so important. This is why it's so important for us to do that. So I want to uh, backtrack mm-hmm. for just a moment, too, to talk a little bit. You know, we've obviously, most of us are focusing a whole bunch of attention right now on the coronavirus, but cytokine storms are not unique to the coronavirus. So uh, you touched base on this just a little bit earlier, but what other kinds of things um, occur where we see these uh, cytokine storms happening? What other type of, of problems might people be on the lookout for? And what are some of those kind of key indicators that would indicate something like that's going on? Key indicators for a, a, an immune system overreaction like a yeah. cytokine storm. Right. Well, I mentioned some of the other uh, medical issues or, and even psychological issues that are suspected to be related to this kind of cytokine storm reaction, like schizophrenia, major depression, Alzheimer's, uh, some kinds of cancer. Mm-hmm. But w- stepping back a bit, inflammatory dysregulation is a factor in almost all musculoskeletal complaints. So anytime someone comes in with a sore, achy joint, there's probably an inflammatory component. And that inflammatory component doesn't mean inflammation is bad. It means that it hasn't been able to resolve. And, and is so, that inflammation in those situations because simply because the body is sensing, hey, there's something wrong here. I need to try to fix this, and this is our standard protocol for fixing things? Or what, what tends to have kicked off that, that inflammatory response in, let's say, a relatively simple musculoskeletal uh, issue that doesn't necessarily involve torn, damaged, or, you know, significantly impaired tissue structures. (laughs) All right. So we're talking about things that don't involve that on a musculoskeletal level. So just to be clear, we're dialing it down now to acute local inflammation. By the way, the the mechanisms are the same across Mm -hmm. systemic, chronic, acute, uh, etc. It's just the magnitude and the pervasiveness of them. So in an achy shoulder joint, say we didn't fall, you didn't strain it, but it's achy, it's been achy for a while. The role that inflammation might be playing there is the, uh, the again, it's the body's attempt to protect and repair uh, threatened tissues. So just like pain itself, which is probably the brain's attempt to protect that part of the body, inflammation is your immune system, immune system's attempt to protect that area physiologically through these cytokines and through cells that look for damaged tissue, tear it out, and uh, build new tissue like fibroblasts where it might be needed. 
So, you know, what got me thinking about this is I'm just sort of like running through my head thinking about lots of the different musculoskeletal, common musculoskeletal disorders we hear about all the time and just wondering, you know, there's probably some, like you said, issue or degree of inflammatory reaction happening in almost all of those things uh, to some degree. And in many instances, it's not really, it may not be apparent. You know, we tend to think about this, well, I don't see any puffiness. I don't see any redness or swelling in there. So there's probably not inflammation, but so it's much hard to find conditions really... where it's not involved. Yeah, it, it's very that the list of exceptions is very short. Yeah, and mm-hmm. in those cases, it's usually genetic or mm-hmm. a tissue-based thing. You know, where it's it's not an inflammatory reaction of the body to damage or perceived damage or that kind of thing. It's a more an innate response or innate quality of the tissue. Those are rare. Yeah. Most of the things that people experience on an ongoing basis, musculoskeletally, have an inflammatory component, and the problem there is not res- resolving. Yeah, inflammation so not resolving. That's why the person has, you know, like I go out in my yard and I do a whole bunch of yard work on the weekend and lift a bunch of heavy rocks and my back hurts for two days. You know, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. no matter what I do, there is mm-hmm. some degree of overload on those tissues that have caused some degree of irritability to kick off some inflammatory response, attempting to address the acute overload on those tissues. And even though I haven't necessarily strained or torn them or caused what we would consider to be a characteristics of a strain injury, there's an inflammatory response in there that's just gonna it's just gonna take a couple of days for that to resolve. The so soreness you get after you go to the gym, after you do some yard work you're not used to, after you do anything you're not used to, that soreness afterwards is inflammation. Yeah. Delayed onset muscle soreness is an inflammatory reaction yeah. in the muscles themselves. Yeah. The body resolves that. That's part of the uh, strengthening and adaptation process. Yeah, it you know clears up that any damage that did happen. It builds some new new strength and tissue, and your nervous system gets used to that kind of stimulation as well. Yeah. The pain cycle is a part of the inflammatory thing, but I can tell. I can. You're going to get me talking about this. I'm going to go a whole other episode if we're not careful. Oh, right. <laughs> well, I you know, I, and I kind of want to always bring this back to like the, the put you on the spot question again, which is like. <laughs> So does massage or soft tissue manipulation or, you know, structural integration, rolfing, whatever it is that is your tool. Yes. Does it do something for the inflammatory processes here, for this, these types of inflammatory issues? What, are the, what can we think about in terms of the, the major physiological responses of what we do that might be beneficial? If I wanted, let's say, talk to my clients about why what I'm doing is helpful What's the simplest kind of easy things that I can say to them about, here's why this is really good for you? It helps inflammation resolve. That's the short answer. The real answer is the longer episode where we go through the different ways that it helps inflammation resolve. Okay, so can I poke that a little bit and just say, so how? What's the major <laughs> oh, mechanism? <man. laughs> can I do that without I, getting into the other I'm not episode? trying to avoid the question. I love yeah. the question. It's just there isn't, I'm resisting the cook it down to a simple answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so. it, I want to be able to go into it and explain when the answer is simple and what the other op- options are. I don't want to overcomplicate yeah. it either. Right. And I'm, 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 you know, if we get back to, COVID storms, for instance, yeah. it's a systemic reaction. Again, it's acute and probably body work doesn't have a direct role and that has indirect effects. Yeah. But there are acute uh, inflammatory reactions and 
especially local inflammatory reactions, where body work can have a really a really clear beneficial effect. It really does do something, quoting mm -hmm. your question. Yeah. And that's, that's again, that's a bigger discussion. But back to COVID for sure, it's, you were going to help people, you know, we're going to learn a lot about what it's like to recover from this, mm -hmm. both if you've had the infection and if you've been in isolation for a while, that's a recovery process as well. Yeah. So we're going to yeah. be learning a lot about what it takes and the role that hands-on work has in recovering from having had a flu like this or from having been inside or been uh, separated for so long. Yeah. I, I wish we had infrastructure in place to be able to have some really good um, studies that were following and tracking these kinds of things in the post-virus outbreak situation. And I'm sure it will be a lot of informal anecdotal evidence about things, but hopefully at least it will maybe stimulate some some ideas for some very important things to be studying. But, um, you know, I was just thinking about the other day I was, I uh, can't remember, somebody had passed along to me a, a study that had come out with uh, that was um, in the physical therapy field looking at the question about how important manual therapy and hands-on approaches were because there's been a sort of a trend amongst a, many, a number of practitioners to move towards um, more education-oriented practices and less mm -hmm. manual therapy interventions. And this, mm -hmm. this article was saying there still is a lot of value and importance in a lot of the things that happen from uh, systemic healing processes that really happen just from the processes of simple touch and the, the therapeutic touch interactions that go on there. And we obviously have kind of been, you know, carrying that mm -hmm. banner for, for a long, long time. But I think this is another <laughs> one of those examples of, of how we may have an opportunity to really emphasize and highlight this a lot. I got an, ex I got an idea. Let's do an experiment where everybody has to isolate for a while and see how, see if they want touch as a result of that. Yeah. And then see if they want to touch. And I think we're already getting the results of that. I'm just reading and hearing from so many people that say my hands are restless. Yeah, I will. You know, I'm feeling touch deprived. All this kind of thing starts to build. Right. And then yes, the actual act of touching in all the different skilled and unskilled ways has really clear and beneficial effects. And and that's one of the foundation stones of our work and our approach. Yeah, we can really rest on. I would imagine there's probably a lot of very happy pets in the houses with all these manual therapists who are getting a lot of attention right now for... Uh, <laughs> Say that again, Whitney. My sound cut out for a second. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying there's um, probably a lot of happy pets in many of the <laughs> situations where manual therapists are living at home and doing a lot of work on their uh, domestic creatures there since they're not working in the in their clinics oh, nowadays. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then happy partners who... That's you right. Know, you don't, not everyone's isolating from their partners, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, my wife is certainly my guinea pig for all kinds of stuff these days. Yeah, right. So, well, I think we've uh, we've hit on some really uh, key factors here and, of course, opened up, um, peered into the can of worms that we should uh, delve into in some of our later episodes as well. So um, mm. these are some real key factors. Anything that um, you want to leave us with today in terms of things to think about, like for the immediacy of what we're looking at with COVID right now and the responses immediately to how people are going to be moving on on the other side of this as we look at it. Yeah. No, we're watching and waiting. We're on the sidelines now. Yeah. Manual therapists are on the sidelines. This is not our battle mm -hmm. to fight. We need to step back. And then, but we're going to learn a lot from this and we're going to have a role to play as recovery happens and uh, as the stress of people's re return to life happens too, we're going to have a huge role to play. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, we, you know, we're going to do 
enormous self, uh, enormous studies, independent studies on self-care and on educating ourselves and in resilience and in adaptability. So yeah. that's where our work really lies right now. Yeah. Important stuff and really good stuff. <clears throat> so um, I think that'll uh, give us some time for reflection about what we're all about. And, and you know, all the practitioners who are really struggling right now with loss of income, um, somebody had posted something the other day that I saw that said, well, you know, right now you don't have the gift of clients, but you do have mm. the gift of time to do some other things mm -hmm. you haven't been able to do self-care things, self-reflection, work on yourself, take some you know courses, read some books, see some videos. There's a lot of things that you can do to continually enrich yourselves and get yourselves fired up and ready to jump back into this because I certainly do have a sense when this thing um, is over and we're coming out on the other side of it, people are really going to be needing the things that we're doing. So um, I think that'll be very Looking for everybody. the opportunities. Yeah, looking for the opportunities this opens up, and there's lots of them. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of downsides, huge. Don't want to minimize that at all. And a lot yeah. of challenges facing us, but lots of opportunities. I know that you that uh, we're offering some free and uh, you know low cost access to things that previously were much more expensive. Yeah. I know that you're doing the same. I know a lot of a lot of options out in the field now that aren't there. Yeah. Should we do our wrap up stuff? Yeah, that sounds good. So uh, that sounds good, and we'll look forward to seeing everybody again, uh, and we'll jump back into this again in in two weeks. So if you want to, make sure to stop by our site, thethinkingpractitioner.com, for show notes and other information that's over there. Until where can people find you? Our site, advanced-trainings.com. What's yours, Whitney? And you can find information for us on our courses that we've got, online courses and other things happening over at theacademyofclinicalmassage.com. And, of course, you're always welcome to email questions to us over at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us out on social media. Uh, Till, where can people find you out there on social? Just my name, at Tiluka, T-I-L-L-U-C-H-A-U. How about you, Whitney? Okay, same thing. Just uh, Whitney Lowe over on Facebook or also the Academy of Clinical Massage on Facebook. And if you will, please remember to uh, rate us, take a look, rate us over on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this. And please tell a friend. Uh, that really helps get the word out about it. And I would mm. like to... Uh, lastly, just say a big thank you to everyone who's been listening to the show. We really appreciate the input and feedback we've been getting from everybody and hope this is um, providing some valuable uh, thinking for everybody as well. Indeed. Thanks, Whitney. All right. That sounds good. We'll see you again in two weeks.